Hey video game fans, I'm Push Dustin, and this is Memory Card. I know some of you will be sad to hear this, but Ben has the week off. Joining me today is Better Ben, or James Montagna. He's the director over at WayForward and has worked on numerous projects there since joining the company. He recently directed Vitamin Connection for the Nintendo Switch and has been involved with several Shantae titles, including the most recent one, Shantae and the Seven Sirens. How are you doing today, James? I'm really excited. I don't know if I'm better Ben. Uh, Ben's pretty good. I'm, I'm, just, I'm like alternative Ben. I'm like Bizarro Ben. Bizarro Ben. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on. I'm, uh, I've been looking forward to this. I'm really excited. And uh, yeah, it's good to just chat with you again, man. It's, it's, uh, yeah. it's been, a while, been a while since I could come out uh, to Japan and hang out with you because of uh, social distancing and all that. But uh, this is uh, just as good. Yeah, we got to meet up. Um, what was it? in uh, i believe it was february february okay yeah it was like right before i i was getting ready to move and everything and it, yeah it was it was so nice to see you and then just everything just shut down yeah we like right before everything went to madness we had a great time hanging out together and like well i'll be back in, in a couple of months tops you know I, I like to you know swing by japan and yeah no uh that the world had other plans yeah <laughs> That's, that's unfortunate, but today we'll be talking about uh, Nintendo before Mario, kind of like how Nintendo started and what they were doing before they started making video games, because they have a really long history. Yeah, so as you know, I'm an enormous Nintendo fan. Mm -hmm. I, I, I would say that Nintendo games are the reason that I got into making video games. You know, I don't think I would be like directing games at WayForward today if it weren't for the games that I played growing up from Nintendo. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just like a testament to the incredible uh, creativity of the, the people making those games. Yeah. It's the type of thing where I, I think I also learned how to make games from playing Nintendo games. So it's uh, it's a company that's really special to me, and I just always like loved their work, and it's been a major impact on my life. So naturally, I wanted to absorb as much like knowledge as possible about this company that's affected me so deeply, and their works influence WayForward games to this day. You know, you play things like um, like Shantae, and there's so many like conventions that started with the games that Nintendo made, and you don't really think about it, but uh, so many games are standing on the shoulder of conventions that started with the stuff that Nintendo has made. Yeah. So they, they really are a special company, you know, and, and they didn't invent video games, but they, they sure made them excellent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's just like uh, recently I, I've been doing a lot of research and um, like the beginnings of Nintendo is, is so interesting. Like uh, Miyamoto joined the company like right when Nintendo started making video games. And so you know, everything that has come out after that has been built upon that knowledge and experience that, that was gained in those, like, formative uh, years. Yeah, it, it, it's so true. Like, all the lessons and philosophies from their time before making video games uh, still influence them in their game designs, and I would even say influence them to this day. Yeah. Before we, before we get into it, I was going to ask you, like, what, what have you been playing lately? You playing any Nintendo games? Um, actually, I'm playing through uh, Wario Land recently, <laughs> the first one. Oh, the original Game Boy Wario Land? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a great game. Oh, wow, I didn't expect that. Yeah, that, yeah. that's uh, actually one of my wife's favorite series. Haru loves the, that series so much. Uh, oh, yeah. 
What, what games are you playing right now? Oh, uh, well, I feel like I'm one of the Animal Crossing holdouts. Like, I, I'm still mm-hmm. playing Animal Crossing. There's a lot of people that are just kind of, like, cooling off with it. You know, and then, like, a new update comes out and they'll play it again. Uh, I'm still on it semi-regularly when I can between uh, busy work times. Uh, but uh, actually, the one that's really caught my interest lately is uh, Clubhouse Games, the new Clubhouse Games on Switch. Oh, yeah. I was so surprised with it. I, I, I didn't really know what to expect. I played the DS one, and it was really wonderful. But just the presentation and polish and thoughtfulness put into every detail of this version of Clubhouse Games is just really really special and i i finally learned how to play uh hanafuda oh yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, and hanafuda is, is such an important part of nintendo's history of course yes i you know hanafuda is of course how they i, I mean people probably know that at this point nintendo started out making card games right so uh and that of course was hanafuda I wasn't planning it, but that's kind of a pretty smooth segue into the topic. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good segue. <laughs> I guess uh, to, to sort of get into, to dive right into kind of how Nintendo started. Yes, they, they started out making Hanafuda cards, but it's, it, I think to really understand the significance of it all, it's important to know mm-hmm. the status of playing cards in Japan at that time. Mm. So Nintendo started in like the late 1800s. But it's important to first look back to the Edo period, which, if I'm not mistaken, ended in like 1860 or so and was immediately followed by the Meiji period. Mm-hmm. And I won't get too much into the history of Japan. There's some pretty great videos online that cover that already. I recommend Googling history of Japan, like literally the first YouTube video result. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's hilarious and informative. I, I think you know the one. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> yeah, I won't get too much into that. Um, but during the Edo period, uh, Japan was under like essentially what was a military dictatorship, and they were pretty cut off from like the rest of the world. So, military power was in the hands of the shogun, which is, I, I, as my understanding of it, is it's a title that's given to like the very top general of Japan, pretty much the person in charge, carrying out the wishes of the emperor in yeah. unifying the country. Right. So, the shogun ran the government with like this sense of harmony as its main goal. And they were very strict in their control though. Like they pretty much wouldn't tolerate something if they felt it threatened the stability of the country. So it was the Portuguese missionaries, I think, that introduced traditional playing cards to Japan. And those are known as uh, trump cards uh, in Japan. So that's like the, the normal like playing cards you and I know with different suits, diamond heart. Yeah. Clover, horseshoe, balloon, you know, all the suits. <laughs> <laughs> all, all, all the marshmallows. <laughs> all, all the marshmallows with playing card verse. Um, anyway, the, the shogun essentially threw out all the foreigners in Japan. Yeah. So in particular, like Portuguese and Spanish missionaries were seen as like spreading subversive ideas. Anything foreign was considered dangerous. It was like... They're, they're, it, was, it was very xenophobic time. Um, and uh, gambling with foreign playing cards was seen as especially dangerous. Mm-hmm. And that's what people would do with these cards. So it was, I think, only like maybe Chinese, Koreans, and I think Dutch could trade with Japan. And any trade was like under very, very strict government control. Yeah. So that's the, the kind of view of playing cards. They're being used for like kind of like CD stuff and gambling. So the the next era in Japan after Edo was was, uh, it was Meiji period and that and that's kind of where the most of the, the Nintendo story starts. 
people were still having playing cards. Like they just couldn't get them from outside sources. So they people have essentially fashioned playing cards inside of Japan. They're making playing cards that didn't come from outside sources, but were still mm. outside card games. You know? Yeah, they're clearly inspired by the outside. Exactly. So, so gamblers they they needed a way to play. So. Uh, there was their own domestic version of cards, and I think they called them uh, karuta, which is yeah. karuta is kind of like a. It's Portuguese. It's carta, which is card, right? So karuta mm-hmm. comes from card or carta from Portuguese. So I mean, those were essentially banned. It was a cat and mouse game between the government and gamblers to try and find ways to subvert the ban. On, on gambling with cards. Mm-hmm. And anytime they'd make some new way to gamble with cards, the government would ban it. That kind of cycle would fuel the creation of different gambling card games. And the designs would get even more abstract. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a, a little bit of background on the situation in Japan at this time. I don't know how much of that stuff you already know. I know you're very well researched. Is any of that surprise to you? Yeah, I was gonna, the only thing I was going to add was that um, the Dutch, they were only allowed through um, Dishima, which was part of, um, I believe, Hiroshima. Right, yeah. Yeah, they were only allowed through there, and that, like they had the Christians that were, um, they were prosecuting. They, were, they actually had Japanese people who were hiding their Christianity, and they would do stuff like making Japanese people stomp on a cross or something like that in order to prove that they weren't Christians. Yeah. Uh, okay. You're yeah. You're pretty well researched, and and that yeah, and that's all true. And it, like, it, what what a like interesting time to 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 be yeah. alive, especially if you are uh, hiding your religion and just trying to exist. Mm-hmm. So how does this all tie into Nintendo, right? Uh, so this is a, yeah. So what is what does stomping on a cross have to do with Nintendo? <laughs> I'm gonna take a leaf from the uh, history of Japan video. Uh, in, in the year 1887, there was no Nintendo. In the year 1889, Nintendo exists. <laughs> in 1859, 30 years earlier, a young artist and entrepreneur named Fusajiro Yamauchi was born. And um, Fusajiro Yamauchi pretty much worked hard every day at his parents' farm in Kyoto. That was essentially uh, what he was doing for a while. And it was it was a life, but it, I don't think it was working for him because he was an artist. You know, you don't want to work on a farm. Mm-hmm. That wasn't really his hopes and dreams. So how do you go from being a, a farm boy to an artist starting Nintendo? Well, the mulberry trees that they grew on the farm were the impetus behind uh, Fusajiro's creativity. Mm-hmm. And he used the bark of the trees to create flower cards, which also known as Hanafuda, also known as Crazy Daisy. Sorry, I made that last one up. They were not called that. <laughs> so Fusajiro Yamauchi needed an outlet to sell these Hanafuda cards he was creating. Like uh, He would essentially be able to deal with local people and, and sell them on a personal basis, but uh, they were hit. That, that was not enough. So he ended up opening up a shop, and that shop was called uh, Nintendo Kopai. It's kind of funny that the name itself, people have trans- translated it as, as like leave luck to heaven. There's a few different ways to interpret it. But either way, the name itself evokes images of gamblery. Okay. Like it's, it, the name itself is kind of like, like, oh, okay. Leave luck to heaven. Like, yeah. like gambling. Right. 
So uh, Fusajiro Yamuchi is selling these cards, which are definitely not for gambling because they're <laughs> works of art. Wink, wink. They have pictures of trees and stuff like that. I know. And the Japanese government said, wow, that sounds A-OK. <laughs> you can gamble with flower cards. Oh, yeah. Because they're, they're, they're flower cards. They're not, you know, anything Western. Exactly. So uh, the game of Hanafuda is now all the rage. Children love them. Art collectors dig it. But most of all, the Yakuza <laughs> really like these cards. So <laughs> how does the Yakuza tie into the history of Nintendo? <laughs> kind of uncomfortable subject, right? Um, <laughs> so the Yakuza were buying fresh packs of cards from Nintendo called by every time they gamble to make sure that there's no funny business going on. Yeah. Because if they're a fresh pack, it hasn't been tampered with. And, you know, when, when you're gambling big money, you, you know, you want to make sure there's, you know, nothing suspicious. Yeah. Uh, if, if anyone is not aware, uh, the Yakuza is basically like the mafia, uh, a Jap- the Japanese version of it, basically. More or less. Yeah. The Yakuza were actually a big reason for the success of uh, these cards. Not the only reason, but it was a, it's a major contributing factor. Yeah, because they would buy a lot of them. Years later, the name Nintendo Kopai was shortened to uh, Nintendo Playing Card Company. And they started opening more locations throughout Japan very rapidly. And they had, they're creating their processes to mass manufacture these beautiful flower cards. And they were just opening more and more locations. They had a, you know, they went from having just this Kyoto, Japan location to location in Osaka and uh, several more. and. It, Essentially, by the year 1900, Nintendo became the biggest card manufacturer in all of Japan. You know, there, there, there was other card manufacturers elsewhere. They were the biggest throughout Japan uh, of, of, of cards. So Tei Yamauchi was born, and basically Fusajiro Yamauchi kept running the family business for many years. It was pretty smooth and uh, not really a lot of like, notable stuff other than just mass expansion. By 1929 or so, Fusajiro Yamauchi was like, I'm getting too old for this stuff. And he was kind of looking to figure out who would be his successor in taking over this company. Now, I, I think Japanese like business, it's, it's, at this point, it's still very much like keeping things in the family. You know, you pass it along to someone in your family to, to kind of like keep tradition alive. Right? Usually to males. I mean, that's my understanding, kind of how it works. Yeah, yeah and usually it's a male, yeah. Um, but Fusajiro Yamuchi did not have a son, right? So that's where uh, a gentleman named Sekirio Kaneda comes in. He is the man who married uh, Tei Yamuchi. He was like, hi, dad-in-law. <laughs> Remember me? <laughs> um, so <laughs> uh, Fusajiro Yamuchi was... Uh, very much willing to pass the company along to Sekiro Kaneda under one condition. Mm. He's basically like, all right, you drive a hard bargain, you take over the business, but you need to change your name. Mm. Sekiro Yamaguchi, as he was now known, was like, done. Okay. (laughs) So that's what happened. (laughs) Where do I sign (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and so uh, Sekiro Yamauchi became the second president of Nintendo. And things were good for a while. And then, knock knock. Oh, who's there? World War II. 
Oh. <laughs> oh no. Oh no's. Sekiro is like, why is nobody buying cards right now? It's because they got to buy other things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was a that was a strange time for the company. They they were trying to look into other things they could manufacture. They're looking to any other kind of goods that these machines could be put towards because people were just not buying uh, cards. So at, at this point, um, around 1945 or so, it was when Hiroshi Yamauchi was like in the picture. And uh, Hiroshi, Hiroshi Yamauchi was actually the grandson of Sekiro Yamauchi. Yeah. And basically, uh, Hiroshi Yamauchi is the Nintendo president that most people associate with the birth of video games. But it wasn't really something that Hiroshi wanted, wanted to do. That is becoming the successor of Nintendo. Sekiro was basically wanting him to take over the business very badly because it was a family business. And of course, that's what you do. And I think Hiroshi Yamauchi's dad kind of disappeared and uh, sort of abandoned him and his mom. So, it, and, and that was a really sensitive point for Hiroshi, I think, throughout his life. But th- there wasn't an immediate uh, successor in Sekiro, uh. Sekiro's son, but his grandson was a uh, well-spoken, intelligent, ambitious young man. So I think Sekiro Yamauchi knew that his grandson would be a really great choice and saw like the potential in him. And I, Hiroshi Yamauchi was like, no thanks, Gramps, I'm busy with law school. Like he, he, <laughs> he, he did not, he, he was like so not interested. And so then uh, that was like 1945 or so, I, he, I think he offered him the company. And there was this like, let's try that again moment in 1949 or so where Sekiro is essentially on his deathbed. He's like, please take over the business. And um, Hiroshi was a really intelligent and cutthroat dude, which is, I really like admire that about him, but man, he probably was like tough to work for. He's probably one of those hard to please guys, right? Yeah. Anyway, on, on the note of being um, real cutthroat, Hiroshi Yamauchi agreed under one condition. There's always a condition. Yeah. And the condition in this case was, he's basically like, okay, fine, but you have to fire my cousin who works at Nintendo. Now, like, let's, let's think about that for a second. That's, uh, I mean, that's, that's family, right? How could you do that? Uh, is what you would say, but... Some Game, game of Thrones stuff right there. Yeah, right? Um, but I think the thinking here was Hiroshi Yamauchi didn't want anyone telling him what to do. Yeah. He didn't want anyone, like, stuck in their ways to be there that has the family name mm-hmm. and therefore has the authority that comes with that. So uh, it was at this point that he wanted to be certain that he could have control mm-hmm. of the company if he was going to actually embark on doing this. And it wasn't a problem. Sekiro Yamuchi said, okay, cool. And it happened. Yeah. Oh, that's all you wanted? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, that's the condition? Sure. So... I think it was 1949. Uh, Hiroshi Yamauchi became the third president of Nintendo. Oh, I should say the Nintendo Playing Card Company. If you have been in Kyoto to the old Nintendo building, uh, you, you've been there before, right, Bush? Yes. Yes, a couple times. Yeah. So this is about uh, where they were at that time. That that old building is is beautiful, by the way. I you heard the news about it, didn't you? Yeah, it's it's, it's been turned into a hotel. Yeah. 
But it's just really interesting to think that this, this, this building has been closed for so many years. Like in Kyoto, Japan, you can actually visit the old Nintendo building. There's like a really beautiful plaque that's still there. I don't know how long it's going to be there, but it's been there since like the, the 40s. I mean, yeah. And yeah, they're, apparently they're turning that building into a hotel like next year or something like that. I, I for one, would love to stay there next time I visit. It's, it's like right in a neighborhood, too. Oh, is that right? Yeah, there's houses, like people living their normal lives right around it. <laughs> Very unassuming, <laughs> right? I, every time I go to Kyoto, I have to like stop by just to kind of like pay my respects. You know, just like, ah, uh, the old Nintendo building. Yeah. I, I d- definitely look, look that building up. It's a really beautiful building. Or go visit it still before they completely uh, do whatever they're going to do to it. I, but yeah, I'm, I for one want to stay there. Next time I'm in Kyoto, I'm going to, uh, if, if it's like an operational hotel, uh, I, I'm so I'm so there. I just want to like exist in that building. Like, what a piece of history. Yeah. There's actually a, this is kind of a funny point, but there's this really like old YouTube video of this guy. Um, what was his name? Like uh, Governor mm-hmm. Watts or something like that was his username. You can look it up. But um, this guy managed to get into the old Nintendo building. He just found a back door and walked in and took recorded a video inside the building. <laughs> and this is the only known footage of the inside of that building. It was from like 2007 or something like that. Uh, so yeah, that, that video's, I, I think it's still up. I hope it's still up. It's still up. Um, yeah. Oh really? Is it the, the, the best? Yeah. Yeah. The best part of that video is, is the, is the tour, uh, that he gets. On the way out. It's been a while since I've seen it. What, what happens there? I, like, I'm trying to remember, like there was a woman in the building, right? Yeah. He goes into the building and then like a, a woman, uh, who is working there or is like living there or security. I don't know. But um, she's like, you can't be here. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. Right. And then like she starts walking him out. But as she's walking this fellow out, she starts like saying like, oh, yeah, if you look over here, this is like our um, uh, image of our former president. And (laughs) (laughs) she she was probably like really excited to have somebody in some like weird way. Like, oh, my. Oh, my God, you're trespassing. But look, there's some really interesting stuff here. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of remember that now. Yeah. I mean, I. It's been years since I saw that video again, but I, I just remembered it as we were talking about this old building because it was like, that's the only like glimpse I think we might be able to have yeah. uh, as the general public into uh, into that building. So bef- until I guess they uh, turn it into a hotel. I, I hope they'll leave up some of the decorations and things that were in there. That would be certainly nice, wouldn't it? I'm really curious about what they'll do with that. Like, will, it, will the inside just be transferred to uh, the new Nintendo headquarters or will it just be hopefully not thrown away? But you know um preserved in some some sort of way i i can't imagine that stuff just gets discarded that would be a shame i mean that's history right there and, yeah. and speaking of history i i guess i got us a little off track <laughs> I, I think it's important to know uh hiroshi yamauchi's first call to order in becoming the president of nintendo do you know the first thing he did when he became uh president of nintendo push no i don't i don't actually you want to take a guess let's see so they're making cards he fired his cousin already you're, you're you're getting you're getting warmer. Is it like reorg shuffle sh- shuffling the board and like making sure that they're all consolidated under him? You could say that. Okay. He fired everybody. <laughs> he wanted a completely fresh start. So yeah, uh, he every literally he came into the um to this role as president and everyone was fired, and that was. Uh, pretty interesting approach and i imagine it's because he wanted to start with a completely fresh state and get new people on board and and so he didn't so he hired new staff he wanted to make sure that people were loyal to him exactly and they 
they weren't going to think of an old way of doing things. Right? He, he, mm-hmm. was a, he had this entrepreneurial spirit, but he was also very much uh, looking to the modern world. And that point is important because it's where he started to kind of deviate from Hanafuda. Because by the year 1953 or so, uh, Hanafuda was not very popular anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point, regular playing cards are not banned anymore. It's 1953. They're not under the, the Shogun. They're under the American occupation. <laughs> right. So playing cards are fine. Yeah. <laughs> That's when uh, they started manufacturing regular playing cards. Mm-hmm. And they, they marketed them as Napoleon playing cards. Th- those cards, they, they were uh, okay. Mm-hmm. But where things really got popular was where Disney got into the mix. And yes, Disney plays an important role in the history of Nintendo. I think a lot of people Mm. might be surprised about that, or maybe not. The time where they were making these cards was when Hiroshi Yamauchi was doing frequent uh, business trips to uh, locations overseas, and specifically America. And one of the reasons he wanted to make playing cards was, as I mentioned earlier, Nintendo was the biggest card company in Japan. And when he went to America, he, he wanted to see what the biggest card company was like in America. And mm-hmm. he had this vision in his mind of something just really elaborate and grand. And like, like well, well, if we're the Japanese uh, counterpart to this company, like, what must they be? And at the time, it was Bicycle was the company. I think people know Bicycle playing cards. They, you know, to this day, they, I think they're a thing. Yeah. He, he made an appointment and he went to visit Bicycle. And it was kind of in a sorry state it was like a single office it was it was nothing much yeah and that was kind of a wake-up call i think Hiroshi Yamauchi. like if this was the playing cards in america like nintendo had locations like all throughout japan and they were you know doing great business selling these cards and they're they much bigger there mm-hmm. and if that's what it was like uh, in america then it, it was a little shocking to him so he started. To, he he started seeing the writing on the wall for for cards, and what they would represent into the future. And he didn't see them as having an enormous future. Like Nintendo just made cards forever. How how could they possibly grow? Yeah, they would eventually shrink. Exactly. Yeah, and he wanted to grow the company. He he had grand visions. He again, he was an entrepreneur, right? So mm-hmm. he had that spirit. So in his trips uh, visiting America, he. Uh, he visited with Roy Disney. And I, I don't know uh, Roy's role at this point in time, but uh, I do know that this was around when Disney was trying to branch out more globally. They're making uh, Tokyo Disneyland was a, was a big thing for them at this time. They were, they were looking into to moving that forward, either planning for that or I don't actually know where the status of that was, but Disney was definitely looking to get their character IP uh, in front of global audiences. Yeah. Here was a mutually beneficial relationship where Hiroshi Yamauchi was able to convince uh, Disney to license out their character IP to Nintendo. This is where things really turned around for Nintendo and their fortunes because they could then take these things, which were mostly considered like for adults playing cards. Yeah. And, uh, you know, back home in Japan, they started creating playing cards with Disney characters on the playing cards and marketing them to kids to play simple, not gambling card games. And that was very successful. And it built up Nintendo's relationship with shops that would sell things for kids like toys. And it was a major uh, 
boon for Nintendo and their business at that time. Yeah. This relationship with Disney really uh, helped Nintendo uh, get their cards out. And, you know, they were seeing really great success at this time. Hey, listeners, we're putting this episode on pause for a bit to talk about how you can support Memory Card. Don't you dare hit that skip ahead button. We promise this won't take too long. If you enjoy the show, the easiest way to support us is by simply spreading the word. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell your followers. Tell that weird guy at 7-Eleven. Hey, listen! If you're less of a social butterfly, you can always leave a positive review. Or you can follow us on Twitter at MemCardShow. You can take your support to the next level by joining our community on Patreon. Memory Card patrons receive perks like early ad-free episodes, shoutouts, and early access to bonus content in our Save Files archive. Every little bit helps, so we hope you'll consider pledging a dollar or two. You can find out more on patreon.com slash memcard. That's patreon.com slash M-E-M-C-A-R-D. And now, back to the show. From that point, I call these the identity crisis years. (laughs) Um, That's because Nintendo, despite their success with uh, the Disney cards, we're starting to see... I guess they're starting to see business dry up, but it's not because of lack of interest. It's because of just increasing competition. You know, I don't think there was an exclusivity between Disney and Nintendo. You know, other people could make Disney stuff. Mm. Other people could make cards. What's what's going to set Nintendo apart as a company? What, what are they going to do that's, that's different from what everyone else was doing? Nintendo did a lot of things. <laughs> so during these identity crisis years, Hiroshi Yamauchi was kind of, uh, I have to imagine, he's just kind of like bored of, with cards, done with them. He, he had higher ambitions, period. So this was about when he started trying other stuff, like a taxi service. <laughs> he actually uh, purchased a taxi service, which I, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, I think it was like Daya was the name of it. Daya Taxi Service. Uh, mm-hmm. The taxi service did not work out when there was a uh, like a strike uh the drivers yeah the taxi drivers were, were on strike and they were demanding better wages conditions I'm, I'm not really sure the specifics of it but that was kind of a downturn because hiroshi Yamauchi saw that and instead of giving into that he just shuttered the taxi service <laughs> again it's a cutthroat nature <laughs> i mean it, it goes with his his history right like no negotiation. Yeah, it was not up for negotiation. Like, uh, no, uh, we're getting out of taxi business. So yeah, that one didn't work out. They tried so many different things. They tried, uh, they opened a love hotel, which I guess for the uninitiated is a uh, type of hotel where, you know, people could go. That was, was popular in Japan at the time where people could go and you book by the hour and it's just a place to uh, relax. Fool around, I guess. Yeah, relax. I don't know, however you want to politely put it. Um, and, um, and you know, I think in America, you might have like this image of it being like a really sleazy place. But I think the perspective from the Japanese side is they're really like well taken care of and clean and just like lots of amenities. I mean, you're only there for like a couple hours, you know, and um, they, they're very like um, elegant and, and nice presentation. I don't think it's really easy to give it like a sleazy image, but I, I, I think the image is a little bit different. Uh, Hard to say. Maybe it's still a little. Uh, but Nintendo tried to get into that business. And, you know, it, it was not their area of expertise, you know? It, yeah. And it, it just, it, it wasn't working out. They tried a lot of things at this time. But 
this is when they started kind of moving more into the toy business. And with all Hiroshi's uh, traveling to America and looking at different things and getting inspired and looking at products, th that's what kind of like, like got them into this business. And it makes sense because they were doing these uh, playing cards that were geared towards kids. So they had all these contacts and connections with being able to sell things to kids. So it was kind of a logical leap for them to try doing that. Yeah. But but there really is so much. I think they did instant noodles. I think they were doing Nintendo instant rice was one of them. They actually were a, a big uh, player in the in, in starting mm -hmm. the concept of instant rice. I think instant noodles already exist, but instant rice. Now, there's a novel idea. Hiroshi Yamauchi put dollars into it, and uh, it kind of flopped. People... People didn't want like instant rice. They they would just make like like people. Yeah. I, I think people already had rice cookers at this point. There's yeah. plenty of rice. They, they didn't need instant rice, but the idea was that like oh, oh the convenience of for like families of having this instant rice. You know, it, it, it didn't take off. I'm curious. So you you mentioned to me that you've been kind of looking into it and researching it. You'll probably do pretty good on this. I'm gonna play a game with you. I'm gonna play a game of real or fake with you. Are you ready for it? I won't have anything in front of me, so I'm not I'm not cheating. Okay, I, I trust you. You're trustworthy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna run some by you, and you tell me real or fake. Okay. Okay. Nintendo copy machine. Like just like a an electronic copier. Yeah. This would be in the '60s or '70s. Mm-hmm. Fake. Eh, it's real. Ah. Uh... <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Nintendo actually made a copy machine called the Copilas, Copilas, and it okay. was. I saw an article uh, a couple years ago that called it like the confusing Holy grail because it's like, why does this even exist? Like people know Nintendo for like, <laughs> for like games or maybe even toys if you're really well versed in them, but like copy machine. So this was just another one of Hiroshi Yamuchi's crazy ideas. Cause I, I, I imagine at the time that they didn't have a lot of expertise in, in um, engineering and um, electronics. So that's why I was like, eh, maybe not, but yeah. So, th so this was a bit later, uh, but this was one of the things that they eventually explored. And it was, uh, I think it was 1970. It was interesting because it was priced really affordably. Mm. And they worked out something with the Japanese government where these Nintendo copy machines, copilas, were uh, distributed and supplied to schools nationwide oh, wow. and that got people familiar with the with the machines so they would use it for other purposes or office purposes they, they just wanted to get them out there mm -hmm. and it's like well if they're you know government supplying is how what's the business model here and apparently hiroshi Amuchi was like really he was like really upfront about the fact that they would break easily <laughs> and uh the, the the model was that people would have to contact nintendo for maintenance mm -hmm. and repair and replacement parts for these machines at least I think that's what they were banking on. People are not as um, proactive about that stuff as you would want them to be. So when, when they broke down, I think people were just like, eh, all right, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll buy another machine. Yeah, we, we didn't pay that much anyway. Yeah, exactly. All right, back to our game. Um, uh, Nintendo Clock. What do you think? R real or fake? That sounds real. You're right. The Nintendo Clock is real. Um, and that was around the 1970s as well. And this was around when Nintendo was doing more like licensing. So they were getting characters from stuff like um, like Ultraman, Kamen Rider, mm -hmm. and making these like uh, these like desk clocks that had licensed characters on them. So yeah, that is real. Nintendo vacuum cleaner. 
real or fake? That's real. Yes, you're right. Uh, you might even yeah. know this one. Uh, I, I think I've heard that one before. I think it was referenced in um, a WarioWare title. Right, yeah. Uh, WarioWare on GBA. Uh, there was a yeah. whole mini game for this particular vacuum cleaner. Um, <laughs> so brilliant and so ahead of its time in many ways. It was basically Roomba a few decades early. I mean, that might be a slight exaggeration, but mm-hmm. but yeah, it's it's really brilliant. And it, So this was called uh, Chiritori. Chiritori, which I think is like dust... Dust and dust getter, dust collector. Something it translates to something loosely like that. Totally, is like uh, to take. Yeah. So yeah. So it's yeah. taking the dust, and it was like yeah. this little machine, and it actually came with a decal of like eyes that you could eyeballs you could put on it to <laughs> kind of like make it look like a cute little thing to have in the house. Like so, if you were so inclined, you could put a sticker of eyeballs on your chiritori, and it uses a simple remote control function to basically dust stuff up around the house. Um, so yeah, that that one is real. Yeah. Nintendo baby stroller. I mean, at this point, why not? <laughs> uh, I'm going to say no for this one, though. You, you, if you said no, you would be wrong, because they actually did make a baby stroller. It was called uh, Mama Berica, oh. and it um, apparently would pinch people's fingers when it folded up. So that was not a hit. <laughs> so uh, Nintendo Cotton Candy Maker. See, I'm, I'm waiting for the one that's, that's like no, so I'm like... Is is he like? Is this the one that's no, or is this the one that's yeah? I don't, I, I, like, are you playing mind games with me? Ah! <laughs> um, cotton, cotton candy. I'm gonna say no. It's real, and I've got one. Um, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they made a little. It's it's really cute too. They made a little cotton candy machine. I've got one still in the box, and I um I paid for like eighty bucks for it mm-hmm. on eBay when I was like. Uh, when I was a teenager, and it was like weird. I typed Nintendo and eBay, and I found it, and that's how I knew it existed. Back then. <laughs> uh, mine still has like a bag of sugar that it came with. I'm sure it's not good, but one day if I ever decide I want to plug it in and use it, I'm like debating like, do I use the sugar? <laughs> do I want to taste Nintendo sugar, the forbidden sugar? <laughs> All right, uh, one more. Let's see. Um, Definitely film it, like, cause like um, I'm not sure how much fo- footage of it. Yeah, I'll have to. I'll have to make sure that's documented. Nintendo Mini Refrigerator. Yes. The one fake one. Come on. Ah, (laughs) You're pretty good, Push. You you did pretty well. So yeah, there's no Nintendo Mini Fridge. But if there was, I would certainly want one. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, well done. So I think the point of this was Nintendo has a really storied history of making a lot of different things. But we should probably get to wrapping this up to the point where how did they get into making video games, right? So you're familiar with Gunpei Yokoi, right? Yeah, uh, so Gunpei Yokoi, he, I, uh, I believe he was working, I don't know if this is a true story or not, but he was working on the assembly line, and like he made like the Ultra Hand. Yeah. Then um, Yamauchi saw the Ultra Hand, because you know, Gunpei Yokoi was just using it to kind of like have fun, he heard about it, so he enjoyed it and then decided to start selling it. Pretty much, yeah. It was it was around 1966, and as you mentioned, he was like an assembly line maintenance worker. Yeah. And there was spare wood in the factory, and he basically fashioned this extending grip apparatus out of spare wood, and he was goofing around with it. And yeah, as you mentioned, Hiroshi Yamauchi kind of caught him goofing around with it, and Gunpei thought he was a little bit, like, he kind of thought he was in trouble. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Hiroshi Yamauchi was kind of deep in thought, and he said, your new job is to make more of those. Yeah. <laughs> so that's when Gunpei Yokoi kind of, uh, who was really instrumental in uh, the history of Nintendo, that's when he kind of became more than a maintenance worker. He was probably 
Nintendo's most important employee at that point in time, besides Yamauchi himself. Yeah. And in 1967, uh, they started making the actual Ultra Hand toys, what they marketed it as. And of course, they had all these these contacts in, in, in the toy business, and mm-hmm. they could uh, sell these in stores. And it became a holiday hit. That's about when Nintendo said this is where we need to be focused and rebranded as a toy company so yeah this plastic hand that stretched out and grabbed things from a distance it was just such a a simple a simple thing and it is the root of a philosophy that uh gunpei yokoi i think he coined this uh this term but it's called the lateral thinking of withered technology is the term and he actually even wrote a book about it under the same title so what does that mean lateral thinking of withered technology basically Lateral thinking is thinking in a different way about withered, like old technology. So there was nothing really high tech about this this uh, extendo arm that was the Ultra Hand, but by thinking about this this uh, sort of technology of doing this um, uh, sort of extending apparatus uh, in a, in a different way, he could uh, create something fun and different. And that's when they started making a lot of toys like the Love Tester, which I know you're familiar with. Yeah. Uh, we were talking before this, uh, the episode about uh, the Love Tester jingle that was playing, uh, <laughs> that plays uh, in commercials back in the day. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, that was in 69, basically. It was, uh, did you know how it works? Like, is it like a electrical, like, current-based machine? I think it, it kind of attempts to read your pulse or something like that. And then, like, like if you have a higher um, pulse reading or something like that, I think it will increase your compatibility. Right, so two people have to hold this. Uh, it's this device with a meter on it, and there's these little metal ball on a on a cord that you hold onto, and you have to like one person holds it, and or so one person holds one metal ball, the other person holds the other metal ball, and then the idea is the two of them also have to hold hands, and the moment when they hold hands is when I think it creates like a like a circuit. Yeah, like yeah, something happens where it was like again really simple technology used in a different and creative way lateral thinking with the technology that was the love tester so this this uh, simple technology would would create a connection and the meter would move up based on the, the amount of connection it was a hit people really liked it you know i actually bought a, a love tester as well i have an original nintendo love tester oh wow i i put batteries in it and i i can't get it to work now oh. I, I guess i'm a little bit concerned that i like the reason it won't work is I have no love in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> There's just no love. Yeah, there's no love. Like, you know, I'm, a, I'm a game designer. I'm just a really good person. <laughs> no, I love what I do. <laughs> so yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's a simple technology. And so uh, that's one of the things they were doing. They also were doing stuff like simple like light-based technology where something was reacting to... Uh, to light it wasn't really impressive technology but they used it to make uh toys that would react to light so they made what they called like a light gun one of the things they did was they they bought out an uh an old bowling alley mm-hmm. and set up a light gun shooting range where they were basically using this uh light based technology to uh, project i think like a flying disc on on a on a on a screen and then you would use the, the light gun to to shoot the disc and it would detect it and if you you know fired accurate if the light hit the right place it would change the um the feedback so it was like oh i shot that that clay disc there and they made like a light gun shooting range it was a completely novel brilliant idea and that was uh that was a hit for a while in fact the the, the opening day uh there's a lot of reporters on the scene like what is this new 
thing, this light gun shooting range. And all the reporters had cameras set up and they had their own lighting equipment that was inter interfering with the uh, actual um, lights that were used in the technology. So it might have been Gunpei Yokoi himself who uh. had to go behind the scenes. And when, when all the news cameras were filming, he basically had to manually trigger the um, event that happens when you uh, accurately fire so that it would put on a good show because it wasn't working due to all the lights interfering with, uh, <laughs> with, 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 the, with the way the game worked. So thankfully that day was a success and uh, the, the light gun shooting range was a thing for a while until it kind of fizzled out. And then they started taking that technology and they made a home version of it mm -hmm. and they made a product called Duck Hunt, which you would set up at home and it would project ducks on the wall and you'd use the light gun to fire at the duck. And yeah, and, and that's how it worked. And of course, that would go on to later inform the actual game Duck Hunt. They were pulling inspiration from from those times. Mm -hmm. You know, you you look even now, uh, Nintendo's still pulling inspiration from those times with stuff like Clubhouse games featuring their Hanafuda cards, right? So at this point, we're really almost into making games. And so they were pretty much uh, a toy company at this point. And Hiroshi Yamauchi really was interested in this technology from overseas. You know, there's Magnavox Odyssey. And of course, as a toy company, like kind of almost like an electronics adjacent company, this was uh, up their alley. Exactly. Hiroshi Yamauchi was a bit hesitant, but Gunpei Yokoi really wanted to explore it. By the 1970s, this is when Nintendo was in their current office in Kyoto. It's, they're, they were moved into this new big building. They were having great success. It's a building, I mean, I think they've renovated it since, but the location is the same to this day. This is like where Nintendo is now. So they're in this building now, and um, mm -hmm. they uh, were looking at this technology overseas with video games, and it was something they were interested in, but they were kind of hesitant. It took a while. It wasn't till 1977 that they started really exploring it. It was the home Pong systems they were most interested in. In their trips overseas looking at technology, they were seeing that... Those were a big thing at the time. Yeah, exactly. It was a really big thing at the time. So yeah. in their trips overseas, they were seeing, okay, this is a hit. They wanted their version of it, so they were looking at that sort of technology. I think at one point they even they, they might have uh, been looking to license that technology and uh, do their version of it. But ultimately, they ended up building their own version of it, and it was called Color TV Game 6, and it was a home console that connects right to the TV that you could play Pong on, or what they referred to as uh, light tennis. And so it had two knobs on it, and both players could control the game with these two simple knobs. But that's technically their first real steps into video games. Now, Color TV Game 6 wasn't the only thing. They also had Color TV Game 15. And that was introduced to the market at the same time. Mm -hmm. Now, here was the thinking there. Nintendo had this sort of thing where they would produce multiple yeah. models. They did this with their Copilas many years earlier where they introduced multiple models, one that was like obviously better because they kind of wanted to upsell you on the better model. Like, well, this one has a few more features, so mm -hmm. you should definitely get this one. But here's this other one. If you're going to spend $100, you might as well spend another $20 and get this better one. Exactly. So the idea there was, okay, well, we have Color TV Game 6, but for more, you can get the Color TV Game 15. Now, what did the Color TV Game 15 have? Well, it had more different ways to play. So the 6 refers to the different ways to play. They, they, they put different rules, like different, put these little uh, switches uh, in different positions on the front of the little unit. And it would change it so like the paddle's smaller, and okay now it's um now it's hockey instead of tennis. Like use your imagination, um and, or or maybe there's like a... they had like obstacles in the middle in one version. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Color TV game fifteen, obviously, 
well, 15 is a bigger number than six. So obviously it's better. I mean, come on. Mm-hmm. Um, but it had, it, yeah, it had more ways to play, but it also had um, the paddles were not attached to the unit itself. So you could, it was attached by a, a cord. So you could hold it in your hand. Very fancy. This, this was a hit. A lot of people were buying color TV game series and they continued making these. They made uh, one called Block Kuzushi, which was based on the, the game of Breakout. They did one called Racing 112, which had a, had a steering wheel attachment. That one's really big. Um, it's kind of hard to find these days, but it's one of the bigger uh, home Nintendo products for that time. Mm. And that, those, were, those were games. Now, before we kind of like wrap on like how they got into games, there's another important aspect here, which is the handheld games. And that was, again, Gunpei Yokoi, uh, just incredible thinker. Actually, I want to give a really quick anecdote. Mm-hmm. I was talking to um, Toshio Iwai, who is the creator of uh, the game Electroplankton. And uh, I, I got to, he, he came to do some talk in uh, America a couple years ago. And I, I just, we totally hit it off. We talked for hours. He was like a big believer in this whole like lateral thinking with the technology as an inventor himself. And not only did he make the game Electroplankton on Nintendo DS, but he's made like a lot of really incredible inventions. So he created a, um, a device called the sound lens. And it was, uh, it was kind of just a museum, like experiment art installation piece where it would um, use a uh, handheld device to scan light in a room or light around you. And it would create sound based on that light. So if you put it towards light, you you get like, if there's a bright light. And then if there's like a little bit of light, you'd be like, and and it was really incredible and really interesting and weird thing. And if you had something with like a bunch of light bulbs on it, you'd get like some texture to the sound because it's picking up these individual bits of light. Just like, what a strange and cool thing. Mm-hmm. Well, Toshio Iwai was part of like a club of people that uh, met to discuss Gunpei Yokoi uh, and like his inventions and stuff like that. And apparently they were looking through a lot of these old documents and notes and papers that uh, Gunpei Yokoi kept. And it turns out that Gunpei Yokoi had already invented the sound lens like 10 years or more before before Toshio Iwai had even thought of it. Yeah, it, it could be even more than 10 years, but many, many years before he had already written out a design that was this exact invention that Toshio Iwai made years later. And that was like a moment for him like, wow, this this man was incredible. So uh, I just wanted to share that really quick. But I, again, that's all like just this uh, lateral thinking with the technology uh, coming into play. And one of the ways was through um, LCD technology, which was used in calculators uh, heavily at the time. He was thinking of it in a different way. And so his thought was, okay, well, if you could have this uh, picture appear on the screen with a liquid crystal display, it doesn't have to just be numbers. It could be other pictures. And you could have, um, you know, you, you put it in a small device like a calculator. And you could have different conditions being set. In, inside and with with, with uh, chips and, and technology that they had at the time, and by having this uh, this setup with just a simple like calculator like technology, you could actually make an interactive game, and that's where the Game and Watch handheld series of games came from. Just from looking at a calculator LCD technology and applying it again, you know, in a, in a different way, and you know that wasn't like very cutting edge, but the way they used it was very cutting edge. It was very uh, different than anything anyone had done before because he was, he was just he looked at the world in a different way and and saw things for their uh their potential you know and so that eventually evolved into game boy and mm-hmm. other technologies and i think the the plus control pad that's still used to this day on controllers all started with game and watch series so that was also a big 
a big moment for Nintendo getting into games. That's that's essentially how it all started. And from there, you know, we get the Famicom, but that that's uh that's a whole other story. At this point, they're making games and yeah, it's 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 incredible that we we think that we go from this to something incredible like Super Smash Brothers Ultimate, but yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like humble roots, right? Like they 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 tried so many things for a company that started in the 1800s. Like what an incredibly long way that they've come and I, you know, they they've been around as a company longer than any person on this earth has been alive and mm-hmm. uh, just with the, the the creative thinkers they have to this day and that you know that again lateral thinking with the technology nintendo systems are always like people criticize them as being a little bit underpowered but i think that philosophy carries through in their dna to this day mm-hmm. they they're they're taking yeah. interesting things like a gyroscope and turning it into the wii remote it it, it, it yeah. takes just incredible thinkers to do that so yeah, they've been around for a long time. I suspect with mm-hmm. the incredible just thinkers that they are, they'll be around for many years to come. Yeah, especially with the success of the Switch right now. Oh um, yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, like the technology with the Switch, that's that's been around for a while, but actually, you know, combining it all into one neat package is something that has, you know, that continually brings Nintendo success. Yeah, I, I think when you when you look at systems like Switch, it's I I have to imagine they could have made some version of Switch sooner, um, yeah. but it might not have been exactly the same, right? But it's uh, it's all the ideas coming together uh, mm-hmm. and, and just this thinking of things in a different way. Uh, that That's what makes it really special, right? So I, there, there's so many examples of this throughout their history of them just like looking at things in their own unique, you know, they really do march the beat of their own drum and looking at things in their own way. Um, and that inspires me too honestly I, like when i think about things i try to think about it in a like take something that's been around for a while even if in game design i take around like a, a gaming convention like a, a way of doing things that's been around for a while but yeah how can we get original with it how can we turn it on its head you know it's not just for hardware you can you can take these concepts and think of them uh these, these old school concepts in new and different ways and i think that's how you innovate and I, if there's anything nintendo has taught us it's innovation yeah and also like um like you went over like the the idea of keep trying you know trying new things and 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 you know even if you fail just pick up and try again because the vacuum cleaner might not have kicked off but you know their other projects have yeah exactly i, I hiroshi yamauchi was relentless he, he did not give up yeah. he he tried so many different things uh and he was just bent on uh finding success with it and eventually he did they found they found their niche and they just like rolled with it and they did incredible things well uh thank you so much for coming on and uh talking about nintendo's history it's my pleasure um yeah i, I hope people will find it really interesting is there anything else that you, you'd like to say before we wrap things up final plugs or anything you know what uh so i will uphold my commitment to eat one candy for everyone that follows me on twitter <laughs> because that is a public promise that i made so if you would like to feed me candy uh, please follow me on Twitter. <laughs> That's at James Popstar, P-O-P-S-T-A-R. Mm-hmm. I will I will eat candy for you. And yeah, and I'll, I'll probably talk about the latest Way Forward releases. There's always something cool around the corner. So yeah, please do follow me. I'd, I'd love to hear from you if you enjoyed uh, this episode of Memory Card. And um, and yeah, yeah, thanks for, if you got this far, thanks for listening. And yeah, keep, keep loving, let's keep loving Nintendo together.
That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Our intro and outro music was crafted by the talented chiptune composer Gemitar. You can find more of his banging beats by searching Gemitar, that's J-A-M-A-T-A-R, on Spotify or visiting Gemitar.com. If you have any feedback on the podcast or would like to recommend a topic, feel free to reach out to us via Twitter, at MemCardShow. Or you can visit our website, MemoryCardShow.com. If you'd like to follow Ben and I, we can be found at SuperBenTendo and at PushDustin, respectively. Have you considered support and memory card on Patreon? If not, we hope you will. Currently, we are supported by quite a few awesome people, including Jackson Bertoli, Taylor Bias, Cody Sam, Michael Strickland, Tyler Davis, Courtney Cotton, Harrison, Jose Ocosta, Taylor, Rob Lawler, Shala, Jorge Bajija, and B-Side Brandon. All of our Patreon information can be found on the support section of our website or on patreon.com slash memcard. We'll be back very soon with some gaming history goodness, so be sure to subscribe and leave a review if you enjoy the show. We'll see you soon.